This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 65, Mythbusters, Diversification. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your hosts, Mark Willis and Holly Bach, invite you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious. Be stable. Be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast. I'm Mark Willis, your co-host, and with me today is my wonderful co-host, Holly Bach. Welcome, Holly. Thank you, Mark. Hello, everyone. We want to jump right into a quick five-star review. We've had so many great responses and folks giving us uh, just positive feedback, uh, both online and offline from our episodes. So we really appreciate it. It keeps us motivated, excited. If you've enjoyed this podcast, if you want us to keep doing episodes that are valuable for you, please let us know. Uh, And the best way you can do that is go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review as long as it is five stars, of course. We want honest reviews. <laughs> uh, and if you have 30 seconds, write us a little comment. Uh, it only helps other people discover this podcast and uh, pushes us uh, in front of new audiences that I think need to learn about some of these awesome strategies we're sharing with folks. So I wanted to bring up uh, Mr. Uh, DJ D. Jacobson, 1792, and he wrote, Stellar Podcast, Five Stars. This podcast does an excellent job of taking facts or studies and relating them to real-life scenarios. The hosts are clear and concise and do not overcomplicate any of the topics. I look forward to future episodes. Hey, thanks, D. Jacobson, wherever you are. That's a tall order. Now we can live up to that. Yeah. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. Well, so if you would like us to read your five-star review, please feel free to put that in the uh, show notes. Or if you want to uh, head to iTunes and and just leave us that five-star there, we we will see it. So we have got some awesome content to cover today. Uh, We're going to be busting another myth. So uh, get your mops, your brooms ready. We're going to be cleaning stuff up here today. So uh, when you first dip your toe into the water of market investing, you know, in general, one of the first cautions the, quote, experts will warn you about uh, is not to put all your eggs in one basket. Uh, So I'm not sure how you invest eggs, and I'm not sure where my (laughs) basket is, but that's okay. Uh, I think the concept behind it is make sure you diversify. You know, that's known, otherwise known as market neutrality. And it basically, uh, it's, it's baffling uh, folks on how to go about the diversification process, however. So the, the phrase is fine, just like our last episode. The phrase sounds nice, but how do you actually do it? So my personal belief is that this is the result of training uh, that's you know, pumped into the uh, investment advisors on Wall Street, focusing specifically on a problem with a finite basket of typical investments that salesmen, investment salesmen have at their disposal, coupled with the, the belief that most average Joes that are investing out there will believe that what they're doing uh, in the markets is known as sufficient diversification. Sort of like when you roll up to the campsite and the camp ranger says, watch out for bears as people wander into Yellowstone, and that camp ranger is then unfortunately selling those poor campers some raw meat. <laughs> so I feel like there's sort of a, a, a double-edged sword on, on diversification, especially when the advice is coming from the folks that are putting you into the market. So it's certainly true that you should diversify within an asset class of stocks and bonds, you know, kind of general modern portfolio theory. That's one type of diversification. Uh, But even FINRA, you know, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority claims that there's about 11 different types of risk that are just totally categorically different 
that uh, the typical investor faces. So, for example, they list disability. You know, how, how can two stocks help diversify me against that risk, right? Or being sued or the risk, and this is going to sound funny, but the risk of living too long mm-hmm. or the risk of inflation uh, and more. I mean, stock investments uh, and their diversification only handles one out of those 11 risks. So unfortunately, we've allowed the investment industry to hijack the term diversification and then pretend like it's only applying to market investments, which is just patently not true. Mm-hmm. So where did the idea of diversification come from? Yeah, so it originated with modern portfolio theory, which says that you take a risky asset and you combine it with a risk-free asset to find this perfect combination that gives you the highest return with the lowest standard deviation or really, you know, deviations, just volatility. And really that works with all areas of life, right? So think of a young couple who wants to start a business, but they also want to keep predictable income that comes from, you know, a day job. So maybe the wife keeps working her full-time day job with steady paychecks coming in while the husband goes out and maybe tries out their risky business idea. So it's just kind of this, you know, where they're trying to kind of find a balance between the two. Um, But can diversification be overdone? Well, yeah, but maybe not in the way that you think. Right. I mean, even our wonderful friend, Warren Buffett, who he, you know, has not yet returned our calls to be on this podcast, but we're working on him, (laughs) (laughs) has said that diversification is protection against ignorance. Diversification is protection against ignorance. He actually and reportedly has 70% of his own wealth in just six companies. So would we really call that just general diversification? I mean, most people, when they're 22 years old, are told, put your money in 35 different ETFs across, you know, 55,000 different companies. Uh, So interesting that even Warren Buffett has most of his wealth in just six companies. Okay, so risk comes not from the vehicle but from not knowing the road. Let me say that again. Risk comes from, not from the vehicle, but from not knowing the road. Uh, if you were a human, would, you, uh, would it be better for you to have 100 businesses um, that you maybe don't know anything about what's going on or save a bunch of time and focus and focus in on one business that you know everything about to make it as profitable as possible? So what are our options? Yeah, so either you can, you know, like you said, buy a bunch of companies you know very little about, and when you know all those companies are tied to the same economy, which is becoming more and more of a kind of an issue in today's global market, then you're going to see your whole portfolio could sustain significant loss. Otherwise, your option is you could buy maybe one or two businesses that you know a lot about and you can use for just about everything. Well, are your decisions going to be a little more strategic in that second scenario? You know, if you're just doing one or two you know a lot about versus just trying to buy up a bunch of little ones that you know nothing about just in the, just in the you know, name of, quote, diversification. And what if that company, that one company, let's say, that you're packing money into that, you know, that you were going to be an owner of, have some equity in, what if where you were keeping that money had a track record of profitability for over a century? What if uh, that when you bought their company stock, they also guaranteed that you'd have an annual increase in your cash position with them every single year, 
even if the company itself didn't turn a profit. I mean, wouldn't that be a pretty rocking cool place to park your money? That'd be pretty nice. Yeah. <laughs> so we wanted to bring on our good friend and co-podcaster, Amanda Neely. She uh, co-hosts the Grandma's Wealth Wisdom podcast. So go check their episodes out. They're doing a great job over there. Uh, but she had some great ideas that I think really speak to this idea of diversification, especially with uh, sort of where we are today in today's generations. Let's take it away, Holly. So boomers and Xers, those generations, they don't have much money because they did things like own larger homes than they can afford. That's what my friend Nancy was talking to me about back in July. And, you know, she was said, told me that they were told to diversify their small 401ks and have um, the, the vast majority of their wealth there, um, if they have any, and that it, can, it would be tied up in a volatile, illiquid asset, something they can't have access to otherwise known as their personal residence. So that's where um, especially uh, boomers and Xers, from, according to Nancy, were saying that a lot of them put a lot of their money into their homes and they buy bigger homes than they can afford. Now, when I was thinking about my own generation, I was thinking, you know, like some millennials, they're, you know, in the same camp. They don't have much wealth for the same reasons or, and also because of things like college loans or not able to find a job, lots of other reasons. But also, when I was thinking about who are the millennials that do have money and that have money left over at the end of each month, or they have money sitting in a savings account, I was thinking they're, by and large, a lot of them are minimalists. And they're, because they chose that minimalistic lifestyle with its simplicity and transparency, they have some extra money. And I, I was thinking about that and I thought about how they would probably love our financial tool that we use, the bank on yourself concept, because it's one tool that can do so much. In fact, if all, if all you had was a checking account and a bank on yourself type policy, you could be t totally set in uh, your financial life. You might not need a 401k, a mortgage, a car loan, credit cards, a line of credit, 529 plans, and so on and so forth. Plus, you could still save a huge amount of money, not a minimalistic amount of money, <laughs> but a huge amount using the bank on yourself concept. And I think that's pretty gosh darn amazing. So go back and listen to... Uh uh, Amanda's quote there, because each of those statements, the 401k, the mortgage, the car loans, I know clients that use their policies with the lens of how you, you might typically think of a 401k or a mortgage or a car loan or credit cards or a 529 plan, uh, using their policy instead of that, all in one, right? So now that we know that you don't have to work super hard to spread all your money into 15 different buckets doing different things, the 529 plan for the college, the mortgage to pay down the debt on the house, uh, the 401k, the car loan. You know, once we've got one uh, vehicle that's doing so much for us pretty well on all fronts, you don't have to worry about picking stocks or rebalancing or all those other headaches. You know, if we had put it into one particular business model known as dividend paying whole life insurance, uh, it solves the problem. And I'd say even much more efficiently than a big basket of volatile mutual funds. But what about the insurance company itself? What do they do? Once um, the money is sent in to them, once I fork over my premium to the insurance company, what are they doing with the cash, right? Don't they diversify? Uh, I don't want to hear about funny accounting tricks or my insurance company showing up in the news like the next Enron or something. So, hey, and by the way, wait a minute. If I could figure out exactly what the insurance company is doing with the money, investing and diversifying and picking certain uh, bonds mostly, maybe I could avoid the insurance cost and just go straight to where they're buying their portfolio and get all the benefits and all the growth without any of the expenses of life insurance. So what do we do there, Holly? 
Yeah, well, we can take a little closer look at that claim and whether that would actually be possible. I mean, it may not be immediately known to most people that there are different opportunities afforded to a life insurer when it comes to investments which are more complex and multifaceted than anything you or I as just kind of retail you know, level investors have at our disposal. So even the smallest life insurance companies have a couple billion dollars at their disposal for investing, meaning that they're at the front of the line for any insurance institutional investment opportunities. So, I mean, kind of an equivalent analogy. Think about the price you pay for a gallon of milk. Then think about the price Walmart pays their suppliers for that same gallon of milk, and you get the picture. When you have scale, you can leverage that scale to your advantage. Okay, and so so what you're saying there is that you know life insurance companies, when they uh, are going out into the market to find a bond, for example, that they have leverage because they're throwing $10 million at that, whereas you and I might have 1000 bucks to throw at that. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe we don't even have access to that same bond because of our smaller scale. Exactly. So, I mean, like it, it works in, in two ways. I mean, first off, the the bond may not even be available to anyone that doesn't, you know, there's minimum investment requirements, right? So like, okay, well, you know, this bond requires a minimum purchase price of, you know, a billion dollars. So it may just be right off the bat, you just can't even get it. Even if you can get it, you may pay more for it. Also, if you have less to invest, kind of that whole, like you were saying, it's all leverage, right? But you mean the kind of the bulk discount, price Mm -hmm. in a way. So it's like, okay, well, if you can break this cap, if you can break this level of investment, then actually, hey, we're going to give you a little bit of a discount on it. Um, And so life insurance companies are able to capitalize on those things, unlike, you know, you and I, Joe Schmo, would be able to do. Now, to be a legitimate life insurance company in this country also, you have to have a couple of things set up. Uh, for example, you have to you know, file with the state insurance commissioner. You have to open your books to their department as well as third-party rating agencies. You have to prove that your investment portfolio, which is mostly made up of investment-grade corporate bonds, are proving to have the ability to pay your bills, any possible loan requests, and death claims at a moment's notice. So you have to be able to kind of prove that you're that solvent, you're that liquid, that you can cover all these things. Um, Generally speaking, insurance companies must have no more than one one thousandth, thousandth, that's a tongue twister, um, of their portfolio invested in any single bond or other investment. So that fact right there should be an eye-opener to us. So when you put your money into a whole life policy, you're immediately investing in that company's portfolio, which is itself invested in at least a thousand different bonds. So, I mean, (laughs) right there, okay, we know individuals alone don't have the capital to experience that level of diversification. Hey, speak for yourself here, Holly. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) No, I'm not quite there yet. All right, so life insurance companies also hire experts, expert bond investors, and certified financial analysts. You know, these are the guys that, you know, got beat up by the nerds in school. So they're the nerds, nerds, nerds that we're, we're talking about here, the high priests of the land of nerds. So, uh, you know, you know, they make the investment decisions on behalf of the whole insurance company's portfolio. Uh, I've met some folks that are in this p- position, and they've been in the business for decades. This is what they do all day long, analyzing the bond choices that the insurance company is going to make. So when you buy that whole life policy, you become, in essence, an owner of that company. And you're also buying all the institution, institutional bond investors' expertise, uh, their, their help 
in knowledge of the market. So each life insurance company that Holly and I work with have uh, worth uh, many bond investors that have studied the markets for decades, regularly make weekly bond purchases of five to ten million dollars every single week. So you know I'm going to go ahead and go on the record admitting right here and now that even as a CFP and a financial expert with years of study and practice building financial plans for clients, even I don't have that kind of expertise. So Holly, I hope you can join me and uh, dear listener, I hope you can join me in, in that admission as well. I don't think I can invest as well as a whole insurance company. Yes. Um, I, I will also go on the record to say that I don't have that capability. <laughs> um, but I mean, insurance is, and it, you know, being an insurance company is a fairly profitable business model. And it has been for a very long time. I mean, lots of insurers receive hundreds of millions, and in some cases, billions of dollars in revenue every single year. And we're not just talking about the premiums that are being collected. I mean, that certainly helps too. But I mean, many insurance companies take the prof- profitability of their diversified portfolio and add to the value of their owners. That's called dividends. So it is profitable. These portfolios are profitable. They're spitting off gains. They're spitting off growth each and every year. But that's just where your dividend comes from. That only profits you at the end of the day. It's also, no, you know, that dividend is also known as a return of premium, which means dividends are handed out to the owners of these dividend-paying whole life insurance policies. So the bottom line is, you know, when you buy a dividend-paying whole life insurance policy from a mutual life insurance company, important note there, you're not participating in the Wall Street model, really rather you're participating in a business model. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, sometimes, uh, you're right, Holly, sometimes they even call this participating whole life insurance. And so that's a great way to put that. It is sort of a business model. So let's kind of paint that picture for a minute. You know, let's get some background music. You know, let's <laughs> let's get the like. So I- imagine a world where uh, if you were given this opportunity, let's say you, you were, were approached by some very established, very, you know, great suit and pants kind, kind of folks, and they were they were ready to offer you equity ownership in a business that they were partners in. And this business, as you looked over their books, you noticed that they had been profitable for over 100 years. Even through the Great Recession and the most recent crisis like 2008, even through the Great Depression, this business has been you know, longstanding through many generations. So this is old money we're talking about here. So all of a sudden, your, your eyes are perked up, your ears are perked up, and you're noticing that this business, this opportunity to be a partner in this business, and as you look closely at the business's books, You even had some outside auditors review the numbers. And let's say that you were satisfied with the portfolio of investments, which was broadly diversified, not among expensive retail financial products available to average Joe investors, but instead high caliber investment grade held to maturity fixed income assets that are providing a massive stream of protected income for years and even decades into the future. Would you, having looked over those numbers, feel comfortable becoming a partner in that business? And what if the negotiations in that business transaction came to pass and, and uh, as you were looking over your contract, you noticed a clause that stated that even if their portfolio should fail to be profitable in a certain year, that business would guarantee you, guarantee you your value of your equity in the company would be protected. In fact, it would guaranteed increase every single year for the rest of your life. And even more so, the contract states that when you pass away, the business would guarantee that your family would receive a windfall much larger than the equity portion um, from their overall sizable tax-free gift from their portfolio. 
I mean, that's awesome. Would you buy into that business? Holly, what do you think? Um, yeah, I think so. It sounds like a pretty good deal. <laughs> pretty good opportunity, right? Yeah. And how much of your current diversified portfolio, diversified in quotes there, would you put from your retail market products marketed to the masses? How much of that portfolio would you want to put into that business? I mean, I think I'd like take it all out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seems silly <laughs> to think otherwise. And put it into right? this business, yeah. right? So I'm not even done yet, guys. Seriously, let me let me run this out a little bit more. So again, back to our boardroom negotiations. With typical financial products, in order to get access to your investments, first you got to sell those mutual funds or whatever. Uh, you'll have to experience as any, any taxes due, and then you finally get what's left to use. Uh, for uh, as you please from whatever the IRS and Wall Street has taken from you. Now, a dividend-paying whole life insurance policy with non-direct recognition loans lets us keep our money uh, in the policy in our account and use it as collateral, which means permanent diversification, even when we liquidate the cash to use it for the stuff of life. Now, you can access that cash for any reason without forfeiting the return you would have earned on your money had you left it alone. Lending yourself money that has no fixed repayment schedule. Uh, let's say it's not reportable to any credit rating agency. And it's not, you know, it's, it's not set up for uh, compounding interest that's going to be amortized against you, for example, um, which saves you a ton of money over the life of the loan. So you're saying that I can invest in this business and this business is just also going to let me reach in and grab that money out? as I see fit? Not even grab it out, but use it as collateral for all the cash you might need in your life. So it stays invested in the company, but you still get a big pile of money anytime you need it for life's needs. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. And then um, even if you could somehow build and match the massive portfolio of this business over here, you know, that, that you've been offered a, in essence, ownership in, um, you know, I don't think you know, I'd be able to slash want to slash spend the rest of my life tracking their portfolio. And I couldn't do that loan feature with my own capital, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, and and just like that was the question I had was, would you even want to, mm -hmm. even if you could? I mean, we've already established you can, <laughs> but even if you could, would you want to? I mean, well, we're talking yeah. about hours upon hours of time to be able to build and manage really as efficient and well-oiled of a machine as life insurance companies have built, I mean, have spent their time building over the past couple hundred years. I mean, we're talking history, I mean, old money, like you were talking about, um, that these insurance companies, that they've already done the, they've already done the time, they've already done the research. So why not leave the experts to do what they're best at so that we can concentrate on what we're best at? I don't, necessarily think that you know we should be splitting our time feeling like we need to be um, spending all of our days picking stocks and bonds. We don't have enough time to do the things that we actually enjoy. Yeah, right? since, since uh, really since we've really fallen in love with Wall Street, somehow we've also uh, been assumed the risk and the obligation and the responsibility of being expert stock pickers. And, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't take a lot of classes in that in high school. You know, <laughs> the average American doesn't. So... Nope, not at all. Um, and actually, even in our next episode, we are going to talk more about the history and the yeah. longevity and even just the pervasiveness of whole life insurance in our country that most people just aren't aware of. So stay tuned for next episode. We're going to talk about that more. But, um, you know, really for purposes of kind of wrapping up today's episode, you know, 
you know, at the end of the day, diversification itself is not a myth. So we're talking about our myth buster here. Diversification isn't a myth, but the way that it's currently being understood by the population is just wrong or it's misunderstood by kind of our country. So someone spits out the word diversification. And what's the first word that comes to mind, right? Mm -hmm. Someone says, oh, yeah, I'm diversified. Me, I immediately think stocks. Mm -hmm. I mean, even yeah. for me, right? right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the first thing that still still pops into my head. And that just shouldn't be the case. That shouldn't be what we think of when we think diversification. Um, but really, the thinking that simply diversifying, you know, all within the same asset class is going to protect us from much of anything at all. That's the myth. You right. know, the myth is that you can just diversify within stocks and that's enough. And that's what diversification means because it's not. Mm -hmm. Diversification is much broader than that. And it's about eliminating all those risks that we talked about before, yeah. you know, that there's 11 risks that, you know, people are exposed to. That's what we're trying to diversify ourselves um, away from. Yeah. And just quickly, you know, when I think about it, if all of your eggs are in 12 different baskets, but they're all in the same truck when they go over the cliff. How much help was that diversification, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you had to buy all those different baskets. Right. I mean, it cost mm -hmm. you more mm -hmm. to put them in all the different baskets too. I mean, yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, true diversification requires a mix of risky, certainly, you know, high, high, hopefully high yielding, riskier investments, but it's also crucial to have those safer vehicles and the safer um, investments as well. And that's where, you know, whole life insurance and some other products as well, not just life insurance, mm -hmm. but other products as right. well can help um, that are just simply being ignored. So diversification, meaning only stocks diversification has been busted. busted. Right on. <laughs> hey, that was nice. All right. Perfect. Perfect. Well, like I said, we're going to be diving into some more material on the history of whole life next episode. Uh, but for today, thank you everyone for joining us for another episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join a financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.